You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. One. The Open D. Let's begin with a song. This is Minor Blues by Kurt Rosenwinkel off his 2001 album The Next Step. Rosenwinkel is one of the premier virtuoso jazz guitarists and composers of the last 30 years. And in the pop world, he's been a session guitarist for Clapton, Donald Fagan, Marcy Playground. Being a session musician is weird. There's a lot of reason to praise Rosenwinkel. But what I want to talk about is what happens in the middle of Rosenwinkel's solo in this recording of Minor Blues. Right here. You hear that? Don't worry, we'll go back. Minor blues is in the key of E-flat minor. In your standard blues scale, that means these are the notes you would expect. But here, Rosenwinkel is in the middle of a solo, running this long, fast, virtuosic arpeggio when he smacks this note. It's the open D string. Really ugly. Big mistake, right? If this were a live recording, that would make sense. Oh, he hit a wrong note. Bound to happen. But this is from a studio album. Why would Kurt Rosenwinkel, one of the finest and most technically competent guitarists alive, leave that in? A couple seconds later, the answer begins to come out. He hits that open D again for a second time. Then... Again, this time to begin another arpeggio. Over and over, there's the D. When Mark Turner on the sax picks up his solo, he starts playing with the D too. And yes, I'm aware that the phrase playing with the D is funny. Laugh it up, you children. My point is, the wrong note becomes a part of the song. A critical part. It's in the story of the song, the conversation. Lesser musicians might have tried to bury the mistake or rush past it. But Rosenwinkel heard it and saw an opportunity. And so, minor blues became part of one of the highest and most holy traditions of jazz. The legend says that Louis Armstrong invented scat when he accidentally dropped the lyric sheet on the floor when recording this take of Heebie Jeebies in 1926. Right here. Probably not true. 
what am I talking about? Definitely not true. There are at least eight recorded examples of scat that predate heebie-jeebies, and Jelly Roll Martin said you could trace it back to a comedian named Joe Sims. He also said that he himself was scatting in 1906 when, and this is a quote, Louis Armstrong was still in the orphan's home. But Armstrong's is the better story. There's a famous recording, I don't know, probably you've heard this one, of Ella Fitzgerald losing the lyrics to Kurt Vile and Bertolt Brecht's Mac the Knife in the second verse and going off on a tear about everybody else who scored a hit with the song, including Louis Armstrong, who she then breaks into an impression of. It is charming as hell. But worth mentioning that Ella managed to forget the lyrics in this way in basically every performance of the song she ever gave. Art Tatum, probably the greatest jazz pianist of all time, once said, there's no such thing as a wrong note. A couple decades later, Bill Evans amended Tatum's decree. There are no wrong notes, only wrong resolutions. And Miles Davis put it this way, there are no wrong notes in jazz, only notes in the wrong places. There's another good quote for describing the same basic mantra. The great American abstract expressionist painter Helen Frankenthaler put it this way, you have to know how to use the accident, how to recognize it, how to control it, and ways to eliminate it so that the whole surface looks felt and born all at once. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We have spent the last uh, 68 episodes. Jesus, could there possibly be that many? We've spent the last 68 episodes mostly clucking our tongues at mistakes and screw-ups, which is fine. Look, it's our mandate, so whatever. We're going to keep doing it. But accidents aren't always bad. Some of them, in fact, are downright miracles. This show is about those. It's different both in tone and format from our regular material. It's mid-April, in the midst of an unprecedented global health crisis. I hope you're okay. I hope you and yours are doing well. If you could use a bit of a bright spot, like I could, this is what I have for you. 13 short stories about some of the best errors in human history. Today's episode, Use the Accident. Two, Eureka. It's from Vitruvius, a Roman architect and writer in the first century BC, that we get the story of our oldest and most famous happy accident. According to Vitruvius, Hero II, ruler of Syracuse, had a problem. He'd asked his goldsmith to craft a crown for him. The goldsmith delivered to Hero a great work, a beautiful golden wreath. But Hero suspected that the goldsmith had pulled one over that he'd pocketed some of the gold for himself and mixed in less valuable silver instead. How to prove it, though? Hero didn't know, but he figured there was one man under his rule who might, Archimedes. The brilliant Archimedes, who was the first to calculate pi out to five places, to calculate the area of a circle, the volume of a sphere, who invented block and tackle pulleys, the odometer, and, possibly to some degree, the catapult. Archimedes, who said he could lift the earth with a lever if you could give him a place to stand, did not know how to solve Hero's dilemma. But he took on the task anyway. Maybe because he enjoyed a good problem. Maybe because Hero was a ruthless tyrant you couldn't cross. Hard to say. 
After trying fruitlessly to uncover a method, Archimedes decided to treat himself to a bath. When he got in, he noticed that the water raised in direct proportion to how much of his body sunk beneath it. With that, Archimedes had his method. The water, displaced by an object, is exactly the same as its volume, and he could divide the mass of the crown by its volume to determine its density. Since silver is more dense than gold, if the density of the crown proved higher, he'd know it had been adulterated. With this remarkable discovery in mind, Archimedes sprung from the bath and ran naked through the streets, shouting, Eureka! Greek for, I've found it. It's a great story, but like Louis Armstrong happening accidentally upon scat, almost certainly not true. For one thing, Archimedes doesn't write anything about it, and he wrote a lot. The tale doesn't show up until Vitruvius, the better part of 200 years later. And, as countless experimenters have noted since, the whole thing doesn't really add up. Archimedes' principle for determining volume is spot on, but in real-world terms, trying to eyeball the difference in displaced water from one single crown is damn near impossible. 1,800 years later, Galileo threw up his hands about the Eureka story. It didn't make sense, couldn't be done. And anyway, Galileo knew that Archimedes already had a much better way of completing the task. Around 240 BC, Hero II had asked Archimedes for a different difficult favor. He asked our genius polymath to design the largest ship ever built. It was to be called the Syracusia, after his city and sailed to the port of Alexandria, where it would be given over as a gift to King Ptolemy III of Egypt. Archimedes' design for the Syracusia was astonishing for its time. It was to weigh about 1,700 tons with a length of 180 feet. It could carry more than 600 passengers, 20 horses, 60,000 measures of corn, 2,000 measures of fresh water, 10,000 jars of saltfish, more than a million pounds of wool, and a million pounds of miscellaneous other cargo. It would be made of rich cypress and citrus woods, decked in ivory, with stone mosaic floors in every room that together told the entirety of Homer's Iliad. The upper decks were held aloft on the backs of a series of atlas statues. There were flower gardens, a library, a dining room, a gym, even a heated bathing pool. The Syracusia would be a marvel of engineering and of luxury, the eighth wonder of the ancient world if it floated, which Archimedes was unsure about. So he got to work on a treatise to figure out why and how things do that, called On Floating Bodies. In it, Archimedes works out the law of hydrostatic equilibrium, some more important observation on spheres, and Archimedes' principle of buoyancy, which he writes as any body wholly or partially immersed in a fluid experiences an upthrust equal to, but opposite in sense to, the weight of the fluid displaced. So, as long as the Syracusia's keel displaced more water than the weight of the ship, it would float. And so it did. But how would Archimedes building a ship for Hero become Archimedes testing a crown for Hero? According to the late classics professor Ian McCausland, you can chalk it up to a slant rhyme. The Greek word for crown is, and you're more likely to know this today than you were a month ago, corona. And the word for the buoyancy-determining keel of the Syracusia? 
is Corone. The wondrous mistake wasn't the discovery of the principle by Archimedes, but the memorable story misimagined by Vitruvius. Eureka! Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 3. Kishu Tenketsu In 850 AD, there lived a Taoist monk who hoped to discover the formula for immortality. Gunpowder has destroyed armies, criminals, mountains, and walls. But first, the monk's house, hands, face, and name. Four, throw it on the fire. Charles's first invention was an improved valve for inflatable rubber life jackets. He presented it to the manager of the Roxbury India Rubber Company of New York in 1834. The manager told him he should have invented a better rubber, not a better valve. The whole warehouse of life jackets had melted into heaps and blobs, sticky and stinking. Charles threw away his valve and took the manager's advice. For the next five years, he tried to find a way to improve rubber. The sap of the Brazilian rubber tree was already a big seller. It made rich men of American and English industrialists and slaves of thousands of Brazilians and Africans. It could be used in erasers, adhesive, insulation, boots, and, yes, life jackets. Except that when it got cold, it cracked. And when it got hot, it melted. For five years, Charles attempted to remedy that. He mixed rubber with anything he could get his hands on. Turpentine, lime, bleach, nitric acid. He spent every last cent. And when the cash ran out, he began begging for more from banks, then family, then friends. When that ran out, he sold off the silverware, the chairs, even his children's math and spelling books. Everything was liable to end up pawned, except for a tea set he retained because it doubled as good vessels for his rubber experiments. He'd keyed in on several promising possibilities over the course of his growing indigence. First, there was nitric acid, which he found made his rubber smoother and less tacky. He sold a stock of acid-smoothed rubber mailbags to the Boston Post Office, but by June, they'd melted. He tried folding sulfur into the rubber, but perhaps frustrated by the difficulty, threw the whole mess onto the open flame of a hot stove. Where? It didn't melt. In fact, as he increased the heat, the sulfur-infused rubber hardened. He named this process after the Roman god of fire, 
vulcanized rubber. Unfortunately for Charles Goodyear, he died in 1860, before his patent was able to dig him and his family out of the substantial debt he'd accrued in the discovery process. The tire company was merely named in his honor, 38 years after his death. Five. Sweet. It's 1879, and chemist Constantine Falberg is working at John Hopkins on cold tar derivatives. It's 1965, and chemist James M. Schlatter is developing an anti-ulcer treatment at G.D. Searle & Company. It's 1976, and researchers Leslie Howe and Shashikant Pottis are experimenting with synthetic derivatives of sucrose at Queen Elizabeth College. Three different times, three different places, three different accidents. In 1879, Constantine Falberg wraps up work on his coal tar products and forgets to wash his hands on the way to dinner. In 1965, James M. Schlatter goes to his notebook to write down an observation about his hopefully ulcer-fighting tetrapeptide. In 1976, Leslie Howe gives Shashikant Pandas a beaker full of chlorinated artificial sucrose and asks him to test it. At dinner, all the food Constantine handles with his hands is incredibly and mysteriously sweet. At his notebook, Jim Schlatter licks his fingers to turn to a fresh page, and it is sweet too. Shashikant Pandas mishears Leslie Howe's request to test the beaker as a request to taste it. Constantine goes back to the lab and begins tasting all of his coal tar derivatives. Jim Schlatter does the same with his gastrin derivatives. And so does Shashikant Pandas with his sucrose ones. Leslie Howe asks, are you crazy? How can you taste compounds without knowing anything about their toxicity? And maybe they all were. But that is how, in 1879, Constantine Falberg discovered saccharin. And that is how, in 1965, James Schlatter discovered aspartame. And that is how, in 1976, Shashikant Pandas discovered sucralose. Whether you prefer sweet and low, NutraSweet, Equal, or Splenda, you've got an accident to thank for your artificial sweetener. And an overeager compound eater. Six, the table. Maybe the single most important decision of the 20th century was to use a wooden table instead of a marble one. The table, or tables, in question, held a piece of silver at which the Via Panasperna boys were shooting neutrons to try to induce radioactivity. It was October of 1934. Back in January, Frederick and Irene Joliot-Curie, daughter of Marie Curie, had discovered artificial radioactivity when they began bombarding aluminum with alpha particles. In Rome, Enrico Fermi thought he could do even better using neutrons. And indeed he did. He and his assistants, nicknamed the Via Penisperna boys, made a number of pioneering firsts in the following months. They figured out that pretty much any element could be rendered radioactive. They split the uranium atom, though they didn't figure that out until a few years after. And somewhere around mid-October, they replaced the marble table with the wooden one. What made that decision so monumental wasn't immediately clear. But 
The researchers noticed that the silver bombarded while on the wooden table became far more radioactive than the silver they'd bombarded on the marble one. They brought the finding to Fermi, who got to thinking about why this might be. Between the silver and the neutron gun was a piece of lead. On October 20th, 1934, Fermi decided to replace it with a block of paraffin. When he fired up the gun, the silver became incredibly, remarkably radioactive, a hundred times more than usual. Enrico Fermi had just discovered slow neutrons. He figured that anything dense in hydrogen worked to slow down the neutrons being shot, and when the neutrons moved slower, they interacted more with the target, causing a larger reaction. That might not sound super important on its face, but it was the beginning of being able to produce and control nuclear fission. It was Fermi who created the first sustained nuclear reaction, in effect, the first nuclear reactor, and Fermi who proved that you could take a nuclear reaction critical, in effect, proving that the atom bomb was possible. And neither of those discoveries, in all their fearsome fullness, would have been possible without the wooden table. And that's true on at least two levels. Not only would the science not have been available, but neither would Fermi himself. In 1938, Enrico Fermi was bestowed the Nobel Prize in Physics for, to quote the committee, demonstrations of the existence of new radioactive elements produced by neutron irradiation and for his related discovery of nuclear reactions brought about by slow neutrons. It was a high honor, both for Fermi and his native Italy, which, though in the grips of Mussolini's fascism, allowed him to travel to Stockholm to receive it. Fermi never came back. He was spirited out of Sweden to America to escape the Italian racial laws that threatened him and his Jewish wife, Laura. Seven. The soul of an artist. Eduard Benedictus said he had the soul of an artist. But his family insisted he study something practical, like chemistry. And so he slaved away on his boring research into old cellulose plastics while he daydreamed about creating silks and satins, mosaics, and, especially, rugs. In 1903, he was absentmindedly thinking of his rugs when he dropped an empty flask, which had previously been filled with the plastic. The flask broke, but it didn't break apart. The plastic cellulose had coated the flask and allowed the broken glass to basically retain its shape instead of flying through the room in shards and sharp edges. Benedictus didn't think much of it. Instead, he thought more about his art. He became one of the great textile artists of the Art Deco movement, creating grand and elaborate geometric fields of pure color, abstract floral patterns repeated into infinity on tapestries, mosaics, and yes, eventually, rugs. Six years later, he read two news articles in quick succession, each about women who had died in car accidents. Their throats were cut by the breaking of the windshield glass. As he reflected on the idea of these grisly scenes, he said the memory of his dropped flask overlaid on top of his imagination. The next day, he went back to the lab and recreated his flask drop on purpose this time. Months later, he filed the first patent on what we now know as safety glass. Still, 
At the end of his life, having made a fortune and saved countless lives, he preferred to be known for his beautiful rugs. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I mean, aside from the obvious right now? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist at your convenience in a safe and private online environment. BetterHelp isn't self-help. It's professional counseling that's available to you anytime and as quickly as 24 hours after signing up. You can send a message to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if it's not working out. And they're more affordable than traditional offline counseling, with financial aid available to boot. And because BetterHelp's counseling is online, it's available worldwide, and offers a broad range of areas of expertise that might not be available to you locally, including licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, sleep issues, LGBT matters, grief, family conflicts, and more. As always, BetterHelp is not only affordable and professional, but also confidential. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Eight. In a heartbeat. Wilson Greetbash's mistake must have seemed very serious. In the 1950s, he was attempting to build a small oscillator that would illustrate and record the rhythm of a heart. But when he put it together, he used the wrong resistor. Instead of reporting a heartbeat, his device instead started letting off electrical shocks. Yikes! Who would want a tiny machine that electrocutes their heart 60 times a minute? Oh, yeah, right. Before Greetbatch's invention, pacemakers were big and heavy, approximately the size and weight of an old CRT television, and they had a nasty habit of both failing and shocking their patients. With two years' worth of revision, Greenblatch's accidentally electrifying oscillator became the first reliable, implantable pacemaker. Nine. Here's the official line verbatim. In 1905, 11-year-old Frank Epperson left a mixture of powdered soda and water along with a stirring stick outside. Whoops! He awoke the next morning to find a frozen pop. Whoa! Popsicle was born and became America's favorite ice pop. Accident? Miracle? 
Popsicle. For years, the Popsicle brand has been telling that story on the back of the box. But look elsewhere, and things start to get fuzzy. In Epperson's 1983 obituary, the New York Times writes that he invented the frozen treat for a fireman's ball in 1922. A 1975 paper in the American Academy of Pediatrics dates Epperson's invention to two years later, in 1924, when he visited friends in New Jersey and accidentally left powdered lemonade on the windowsill with a spoon in it. Food historian Andrew Smith notes that two Americans were selling what they called hokey pokies, frozen fruit drinks on sticks, back in the 1870s. Every detail, down to the word popsicle itself, is contradicted in the historical record. The Popsicle Company themselves say at different times and places that the pop refers either to soda pop or to Epperson himself, whose kids called him pop. And then there's this little nugget. In San Francisco, where the 11-year-old Frank Epperson lived in 1905, the lowest recorded temperature for the entire year was 39 degrees Fahrenheit. 7 degrees above freezing. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. This year, 22 billion popsicles will be sold. You might even have some in your freezer right now. So why can't we say for certain who invented them, and when, and how? On this, the first in a five-part series, we're going to try to do just that. It's a story that will take us from a Bay Area suburb where only the dead live to Shackleton's South Pole expedition, all the way back to a mysterious French alchemist who some believe discovered the secret to immortality. This week's episode, Oh God, I'm Wasting My Life. Please no. Please God help me. No, no, no. I can't do this again. Ten. Prometheus Abound. For most of human history, all that was required to make fire was two sticks. Plus some friction. Okay, a lot of friction. Then at some point, still long enough ago to predate any records, came the flint and steel. Flint and steel were easier to use, but harder to find than sticks. Those remained the options for thousands of years. The first hint of an improvement on these methods had to wait until 577 AD at the earliest. According to Records of the Unworldly and the Strange, written by Taogu around 950 AD, when the Kingdom of Northern Qi was under siege and timber was in short supply to be kept burning, the women of the court took to dipping pine sticks in sulfur. These could be ignited with just a touch to an ember allowing fire to basically be held in reserve until needed. During the siege, the women called them light-bringing slaves. But afterward, they were sold commercially as fire-inch sticks. In the 1660s, the German alchemist Hennig Brand was doing what most alchemists did, trying to transmute lead into gold. He believed that the key ingredient for transmutation must be urine which he experimented with by concentrating, distilling, and reducing his own, then mixing it with other substances like saltpeter and aluminum. If you'd believe it, his PP potions didn't work. But one day, he was trying to reduce urine down to just its solid parts in his furnace when the residue began to react. It became liquid again, dripping out of his retort and bursting into flames. 
He collected some of the liquid in a jar, where it cooled into a lightly glowing solid, which he named phosphorus. An incredible moment in the history of chemistry. So what did Brand do? He hid it for fear other alchemists would profit, and used his newly found phosphorus to try to turn lead into gold. When that didn't work, he let the secret slip. If you couldn't get gold out of it, what was the point? Ten years later, the great chemist Robert Boyle began working with phosphorus, rubbing it together with sulfur to make fire, but in purely an experimental way, not practical. The plain fact of the matter is that nobody really needed a better way to make fire. Flint and steel did a fine enough job. Sure, it took some doing, but you only had to produce a flame a couple times a day at most to get the fireplaces going, to heat the stove. That was it. So, maybe things would have ended there if not for a fun new trend that hit Europe a couple decades before Brandon Boyle. Smoking. Lighting a pipe or a cigar in a world of flint and steel was a pain in the ass. You could use a candle if one was lit nearby, or dip a piece of straw into the fireplace. If you were outside or away from an open flame, though, you'd have to use a striker, a portable one-handed flint and steel device that was sort of like a 17th century lighter, but without any fuel just a mess of sparks you held up to your face in hopes they'd hit your cigar and, fingers crossed, nothing else. It took until 1805 for someone to invent a practical match, but it really stretched the definition of practical. John Chancel made and sold wooden splints that had tips made of a mixture of sugar, rubber, sulfur, and potassium chlorate. To light one, you only had to open up the small asbestos bottle they came with and dip it in sulfuric acid. Ta-da! Instant fire. And also chlorine dioxide, a funky yellow gas that has a tendency to violently explode when exposed to certain chemicals, or pressure shock, or light. For reasons unknown, Chancel's matches weren't very popular. But similar attempts kept being made. In 1817, the ethereal match was released to the public. It was a piece of paper soaked in a compound of phosphorus that exploded when exposed to air. The ethereal match was packaged in a fragile, vacuum-sealed glass tube. As soon as the tube was broken, hopefully on purpose most of the time, you instantly had a bright, difficult, super-hot red fire that couldn't be put out through normal means. Wonderful. In 1826, John Walker, an English chemist, was looking for a way to make a match that would light instead of explode. He was mixing together a pot of potential chemicals by the fireplace, but the combination of sulfur, potash, and red antimony kept gunking up on the end of his mixing stick. To try to get it off, he rubbed the wooden stick against his stone hearth, and voila, the first strikeable match, which John Walker named Congraves, after the English rocket inventor Sir William Congrave. The end. Oh, except they were a commercial failure, and so another inventor stole the design and repackaged them as the much more successful Lucifers, which is indisputably the coolest name for a match. The end. Oh, except that Lucifers and Congraves were both poisonous. The end. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. 11. A Sticky Situation. Wait, wasn't that already an episode? Harry Coover was starting to get pissed. He spent most of World War II working for Kodak, trying to make a cheap, clear, and resilient plastic gun sight for American soldiers. But the cyanoacrylates kept sticking to his tools, and to his fingers, and to his tools to his fingers. Eventually, Coover gave it up. In the early 50s, Kodak asked him to go back to the same plastic to see if he could turn it into a heat-proof canopy for jets. But that was no good either. The version he and his team were playing with in 51 was so sticky that you could put a dab on one object, put another object on top of it, and the two would become permanently stuck together. It was so ridiculous that Harry started testing it out to show off how impossible it was to work with. Look, you can bind a notebook to an umbrella. See that? Combination tea kettle floor lamp. What was the point of working with this crap? The only thing it was good for was gluing things together. But it was very good at gluing things together, come to think of it. No heat, no pressure. It didn't degrade or loosen. It was super glue. Twelve. A less sticky situation. Super glue opened up a world of super adhesives, and 3M wanted one for themselves that they could sell to Boeing to make airplanes. Spencer Silver was put on the job and thought he was onto something when he created a thin film of virtually indestructible acrylic microspheres. Except, in practice, they weren't very sticky at all. You could pull anything adhesed with it apart with just a light tug. And so, the post-it note was born. It took a few years for everybody to figure that out. At first, Silver thought he should make a sticky whiteboard onto which you could temporarily stick little pieces of paper, like the inverse of post-it notes. 3M didn't like it. Five years later, another chemist at 3M, named Art Fry, was singing in his church choir, or trying to. But every time he opened up his hymnal, his bookmarks fell out of it, and he had to go flipping through pages to find the song he was supposed to be singing. He went to Silver and suggested they put the acrylic beads on the paper instead of the board. And so, the post-it note was born. Except 3M still didn't like it. Another three years later, Silver, Fry, and a manager named Jeff Nicholson decided to force the issue. They knew they had a good product. They just needed to prove it to the higher-ups. So they had a bunch of their post-its made up and handed them out to people for free. 90% of the people who took samples came back asking for more. Now that, 3M liked. And so, finally, the post-it note was born. For real this time. 
Gosh, I suppose I should do this last one. Thirteen. What? This moldy old thing? We'll end on the other most famous and important accidental discovery. Penicillin. It's a story you've probably heard, but let's recount it just to be sure. In the late summer of 1928, Alexander Fleming was working at St. Mary's Hospital in London, trying to find a good medical disinfectant. He grew cultures of staph and strep bacteria in his petri dishes and attempted using various chemicals to inhibit their growth. But no luck. Then he went on vacation, leaving his petri dishes bundled up in a corner by an open window for a few weeks, during which some mold spores serendipitously made their way into one of the samples. When Fleming returned, he found a clump of blue-green mold in one of his petri dishes, and all around it was a halo where the staphylococci had died off. As Fleming put it, When I woke up just after dawn on September 28, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacteria killer, but I guess that's exactly what I did. Except that's probably not the real story, and it's certainly not all of it. For a start, it's very much doubtful that the Petri dish was contaminated as Fleming described. Other lab workers attested that the window was never left open because the street noise was deafening and made it impossible to work. The lab in which Fleming made his discovery is a museum, kept today as it was then, and if you visit, you can see that the window wouldn't have even been in reach for Fleming to open it. Add to that, the timing of Fleming's story is all kinds of wonky. If he'd already seeded the Petri dish with staph bacteria before he went on vacation, it would have already grown over the pectin, and there'd be no way for a mold spore to take root. Where still, in his journal, Fleming says the vacation was five weeks long, meaning not only that he couldn't have seen what happened after two, but that by the time he'd come back to it, the dish would have been entirely overrun by the fungus, and he wouldn't have been able to tell what the juice did to the bacteria. The timing gets sketchier still when you find out that the account of Fleming's accidental find wasn't published until the middle of 1944, after penicillin was already in medical use. There are other problems. Alexander was a brilliant microbiologist. He was so good with bacteria that he used to paint pictures with them, knowing which would produce what colors and how to feed them so that they would grow florid post-impressionist portraits of dancing ballerinas like a microbial Degas. But he wasn't a chemist. He called his discovery penicillin after the mold he got a different expert to identify as penicillium notatum. But for all his trying, he couldn't isolate or concentrate this penicillin, the part of the mold juice, as he called it, that killed the staph. In lieu of that, he made several other findings about penicillin, that it killed not just staph and strep, but most any bacteria that was gram-positive, including the causes of most meningitis, diphtheria, most pneumonias, and scarlet fever. And he found that this penicillin, whatever it was, wasn't toxic to mammals, up to and including humans. But because he couldn't find the thing itself, nor get it into a concentrated usable dosage, Andrew Fleming was never able to actually do anything practical with his discovery. And because he was a quiet, shy, self-effacing speaker and writer, nobody paid any mind to what he found. And penicillin almost never came to be. Lucky for us, 
Ten years after Fleming's mold-covered Petri dish, however it got that way, and several years after he'd given up on the venture and moved on, Dr. Howard Florey, director of the pathology department at Oxford, happened upon Fleming's paper while flipping through old copies of a medical journal. Florey understood Fleming's meek little paper as the possible revolution it might be, and put a team together to study Fleming's mold juice. It took several more years of grueling research, during which mice were saved, gardeners were lost, and the whole team had to flee to Peoria from England with penicillium mold cultures spread on their coats for fear their work might fall into Nazi hands, before Flory and his assistants finally got enough penicillin in a high enough concentration to save a life. On March 14, 1942, Ann Miller was dying from septicemia after a miscarriage. For weeks, she held on, but doctors couldn't get her temperature below 103. Another patient at the hospital knew about Flory's work, and so Miller's doctor was able to convince the U.S. government to give over a tablespoon worth of penicillin for her. It was half of Flory's entire supply. But within a day, Ann Miller's temperature had broken, and in barely longer, she was entirely cured. So, Fleming didn't get very far with penicillin, and the exact circumstances of how he came upon it are confusing. Why, then, does he tend to get all the credit in the popular memory, while Flory and his associates are largely forgotten? Well, we can imagine two reasons. The first is, as it so frequently is, the nature of narrative. The story of Fleming's accidental discovery, a messy lab left for vacation, changing medicine and the world at large so profoundly, tickles our story bone, something fierce. That's probably the bulk of the explanation, really. It's certainly how Flory saw things, and he was miffed beyond miffing that Fleming got all the glory. But the second explanation is the one that gives it to Fleming on the merits. Fleming was by no means the first person to think about using fungus for medicine. Numerous European, Asian, and Native American cultures used bread mold on wounds. Pliny thought mushrooms could cure rheumatism. And Hippocrates said yeast could cure yeast infections, which is bad advice even for Hippocrates. None of these treatments were more than nominally effective. Plenty, like Hippocrates, were worse than nothing. And the same can be said for pretty much every medical intervention for infection up until Ignis Semmelweis, Joseph Lister, and Louis Pasteur in the 19th century. But their discoveries of antiseptics were largely prophylactic and topical. If you kept hands and skin and materials clean, you could hopefully prevent infection. Once that infection was present, though, there was still nothing to be done. During the Boer War, between 1899 and 1902, British doctors used gauze soaked in carbonic acid as a sort of internal antiseptic packing wounds with it under the premise that what sanitized hands and medical instruments ought to also be able to kill bacteria in wounds. They were wrong, but because the South African environment was much more sterile than the muddy fields of European wars, they became convinced they had the cure for infection. With World War I, their mistake was called out. The stagnant, wet trenches between France and Germany caused gangrene, staph infections, and more. The acid-drenched gauze packs provided no relief. In fact, as far as Alexander Fleming could tell, who was stationed at a MASH hospital in a French casino, the treatment only made things worse. He dedicated himself to finding a way to take care of bacteria after they'd colonized a patient. And however precisely the mold ended up in his Petri dish in 1928, 
he recognized it for the miracle it could be. John Tyndall had accidentally noticed penicillin-killing bacteria all the way back in 1876, but he thought nothing of it. Pasteur had noticed something similar the next year, but also brushed it aside as a minor observation. It's sort of ironic that we should be so keen to give someone credit for something done by accident. But the accident isn't the amazing thing. It's recognizing that accident for what it is and what it could be. Fleming could just have easily said, hey, this mold ruined my bacteria and thrown it away. Goodyear could have assumed his burnt rubber was useless. Enrico Fermi might have shrugged off the radioactive silver as a fluke. And Kurt Rosenwinkel could have yelled, cut, and begun a fresh recording where he ran his arpeggio without that dissident D-string. But each protagonist in each of these stories did the brave and frightening thing. They stood on quaking earth, stripped off their prejudices, their egos, and took the sage advice of Helen Frankenthaler to use the accident. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, and Kevin McLeod. Title cards by Heather Chrysler. In the course of working on this episode, I keyed into so many stories like these ones that arbitrarily didn't make it into the running. So I'm going to be producing more happy accident stories like these for The Secret Feed, which you can find by signing up to support the show at patreon.com slash the constant. If you like this show, please help us spread the word. You can find our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages by going to constantpodcast.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or pick a favorite episode and share it on your social and tell a friend. We are a proud part of Hub and Spoke Audio Collective, home to the Lonely Palette, who were recently the podcast in residence at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Host Tamar Avishai put out five fantastic stories about their exhibition, Women Take the Floor, including episodes about Georgia O'Keeffe and Frida Kahlo. They're wonderful, and you should listen to them, you heathens. Stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where on December 2nd, 1942, Enrico Fermi demonstrated the first ever human-created, self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction in a University of Chicago squash court. This has been The Constant. It took several more years of grueling research, during which mice were saved, gardeners were lost, and the whole team had to flee to Peoria, Illinois from England with penicillium mold cultures spread on their coats for f- Boy, that's a lot of sentence. What am I, fucking Immanuel Kant? Why does every sentence have to be a paragraph? Why not just, like, write like a journalist that I'm not? How about that for an idea? 